Hello, I'm Neil Aitchison and welcome to the Willett Warwick podcast. You join me for one in a series of podcasts from the third British Shakespeare Association conference at the University of Warwick. And I'm joined by two writers on Shakespeare and Shakespearean figures to discuss their work writing about the Bard. The latest work by Rennie Weiss of University College London has just been published and it's called Shakespeare Revealed, a Biography. Elizabeth Schaefer's most recent book is a biography of Lillian Bayliss, who as a manager of London's Old Vic started a company that became the National Theatre and was popular for putting on lots of Shakespeare productions. René, just uh, turning to you, uh, a biography of Shakespeare, one in the long uh, canon. Why write a biography of Shakespeare then? What uh, can we learn, do you think, by studying the man that uh, we can't learn by studying the text? Well, I think we're interested in the man because of the text, of course. I mean, that's the only reason why we want to write a biography of someone who is probably just, um, in some ways, uh, well, just, uh, just a glover of Trafford upon Avon, but who also became the most famous playwright in the world. And so, in a sense, I mean, uh, clearly people are curious about the person behind the books, behind, in this case, the plays and the poems. And I thought I would kind of want to try my hand at that and to see uh, if I could write a biography that was going to be more Stratford-centric than is commonly the case by using the records of the corporation archives uh, as extensively as I possibly could, but also by drawing the works on the plays and poems uh, to see whether uh, where they converge with... Uh, or whether it can be seen or be thought to converge with the life and they could sort of throw light on things in Shakespeare's life. Uh, and how does that illuminate the work, do you think, uh, knowing about Shakespeare's life? I'm not convinced that the works are illuminated in any manner or form whatsoever by knowing a great deal about the, the life. I mean, I think it would be quite wrong, personally, to teach the plays, as it were, with reference to the life. But I think it is perfectly legitimate, if you have decided to write a biography, as it were, of Shakespeare because of the plays and poems, to then draw on them where it seems reasonable or possible to do so. Um, and there's a kind of circularity uh, in all that. I can obviously see that. This is, uh, to some extent, uh, evidence, albeit of a peculiar literary kind. After all, Shakespeare was a playwright. Uh, he wrote and he worked very hard at uh, his works. He's averaged two plays a year while also acting. This is what he did for a living. So if you're kind of right about his life, the things he did for a living, uh, his plays and poems to come into it. And just to talk a little bit more about the nature of biography then, does, uh, does it get in the way of uh, appreciating the work, do you think? Uh, are we always a little sort of let down by knowing uh, about the man that uh, he wasn't as great as his great work? I think it's a very, very fair point. I think, I mean, nothing could, I mean, no, as it were, history of a life could live up to the plays and poems, clearly. I mean, and I think it's a very kind of valid point. People have taken great exception, for example, to um, the pictures of Shakespeare, the first folio, and also the bust in Holy Trinity, the bust, which is almost certainly either a life or a death mask. Uh, he doesn't look, as it were, like one's idea of an incredibly gifted playwright. But, I mean, that's in, in the end, ultimately, of uh, no consequence. But at the end of the day, of course, faculty was a very successful for a businessman has kind of rather worried people. After all, here's a man who writes a play like King Lear, which is all about imaginative being and to some extent about social justice, but the need for us to be nice, as it were, perhaps to one another. At the same time, there's Shakespeare being very predatory in his business dealings, uh, where he really, as a person, is at stake. So the life and the work, uh, they may well converge, but they also deeply diverge. 
And an alternative uh, title, uh, and why it's been published in the state of your work, is uh, Decoding Shakespeare. That, uh, so just explain a little about, about uh, the nature of your work in this biography, then. How have you decoded Shakespeare? Well, I think the, the decoding comes from trying to kind of uh, tease out from um, the works. I mean, names like, for example, Bassanio in The Merchant of Venice or Milia in Othello, and to try and relate that. Um, but I hope, I hope, in a scrupulous and ultimately scholarly fashion, to uh, Shakespeare's life, for example, in this case, I mean, the whole business of the kind of triangle in *The Merchant of Venice*, uh, relating that to the summers, the triangle, the summers, the kind of bisexuality or homosexuality, um, and so on. So, in a sense, I mean, there's a sense in which the plays, for example, I'll give you a very specific example. I mean, the phrase "godson," "godson." Uh, occurs once in the whole of the Shakespeare canon in King Lear. King Lear was written in late 1605, early 1606. Um, the one person in the period, in the 17th century, was thought to be and claimed to be Shakespeare's godson was William Davenant, who was born uh, in the spring, late winter, early spring of 1606. Uh, this could just be a coincidence, of course, just as it could just be a coincidence that doctors suddenly become very important in Macbeth and in Pericles. Uh, but it may not be. It may just be to do with the fact that Davenant was indeed Shakespeare's godson, if not as Davenant himself sometimes maintained his son, or it, that Saruman in Pericles as a doctor in Macbeth, maybe to do with the fact that Shakespeare's daughter Susanna at that very moment is seeing a man called John Hall who, who, who would become the most famous doctor in the whole of Warwickshire. And you talked in the seminar about uh, Shakespeare uh, going to London and then returning here back to Stratford, uh, buying a sort of large house that uh, uh, as a sort of social uh, statement. Uh, uh, what's your sort of thinking behind that whole sort of process? Well, I think Shakespeare's life has a wonderful circularity. He leaves Trafford upon Avon, he comes back in 1596, 1597, 1596 in August his son dies. In 1597, Shakespeare moves into the second largest, well, in fact, the largest house in Trafford upon Avon. He's making a statement, I suspect, about uh, social status. After all, this is a, a young man who grew up as a rich kid, then his father fell on evil days. I think there's no doubt about that. John Shakespeare, Shakespeare William Shakespeare's father, uh, fared very badly in the kind of late 1570s, 1580s. And to some extent, maybe, and in fact, Shakespeare wanted a coat of arms and got for his father a coat of arms. The, this is a young uh, kind of country lad, ultimately making good in the big city. But as Stanley Wells has said so wisely, he becomes our first literary commuter. Uh, after 1596, 1597, he's based in Stratford upon Avon uh, in his very large house in London. He never ever uh, buys property until 1613, in, which is the Blackfriars Gatehouse, a property which he never inhabits. Uh, he lives and is based and remains based after 1596, 1597 in his own hometown, where I suspect he led the life when he wasn't writing. And he must have spent, for example, the whole of Lent each year at home writing. But I mean, it's a kind of respectable, Trafford upon Avon Burger. Am I right, you sort of drawing out uh, detail about uh, his mother and uh, her sort of whereabouts? Well, I think, I mean, the, the thing about his mother is that his mother's house was identified by a piece of brilliant detective work uh, about seven years ago. And this is the kind of thing, the kind of information, hard information, which comes from the kind of tithe record of the period. And it's rather wonderful. His mother was called Mary Arne. She came from a family that was almost certainly Catholic. Now, I'm not saying that Shakespeare, therefore, was Catholic. But the family was related almost certainly to the big Arne Catholic family of Warwickshire, one of the biggest families in the county. 
Um, but yes, I mean, Shakespeare's, discovering Shakespeare's home, what that proves, I think, if anything, is that major discoveries can still be made. It is extraordinary that we now know, as biographers before us and people before us did not, where Shakespeare's mother grew up, the exact home, the exact place, it's still there. And this all aids our understanding of the work, you think? I wouldn't want to say that. I think there is, of course, you know, a kind of tremendous... I'm going to take the issue of Catholicism for a moment. I mean, the fact that Shakespeare and King Lear uh, use the, uh, a text which is deeply hostile uh, to the Catholics, incredibly unpleasant text, which even seems to kind of refer scathingly to people he might have known uh, in Stratford-upon-Avon, suggests, you know, that if anything, Shakespeare's issue is incredibly complicated. Take play like Hamlet, where you have Catholics and Protestants, and uh, the bottom line is, personally, if I were put on the spots, I would say that Shakespeare was probably an Anglican. Uh, and I love both. <laughs> Elizabeth, just uh, turning to, to you then and uh, your book on Lillian Bayliss. Uh, it's not a figure that's uh, particularly so well known. Perhaps uh, you can explain first of all who she was and what her influence was. Mm. Well, Lillian Bayliss was um, the most extraordinary theatre manager and impresario. She ran the Old Vic and the Sadler's Wells Theatre until her death in 1937. And she transformed the Old Vic, um, in particular, uh, into a theatre which, um, it, this was her own claim, was the home of Shakespeare uh, in London. She actually had that phrase up on the Old Vic, home of Shakespeare. And as far as Shakespeare studies is concerned, Lillian Bayliss's importance is that she took the decision to make Shakespeare her house dramatist. So her theatre companies put on more Shakespeare than anyone had ever done since the original company that Shakespeare was in. And they were completely committed to putting on Shakespeare productions of varying quality, but Shakespeare through nine months of the year, starting in September, right through the year. And she put on more plays by Shakespeare than anyone had done in a long time. So she did do the plays that they knew wouldn't sell. She did do Troilus and Cressida, um, even though she knew that the box office was going to be um, bad. Obviously, she did plays like King Lear and Macbeth rather more often. Um, so her importance, really, is that as a manager, she had a great impact on the way Shakespeare was produced in the early 20th century. She also had a huge impact in terms of the um, actors whose careers she fostered. Um, this would include people like John Gielgud, Laurence Olivier, Peggy Ashcroft. And John Gielgud, for example, when he went to work at the Old Vic, he had a successful career as a sort of matinee idol. He, he appeared in West End comedy of manners. He was not known as a classical actor. After a few years at the Old Vic, he was being hailed as a major classical actor. And that's the difference that her theatre made to John Gielgud's um, career. And the companies that she built there basically eventually became um, the National Theatre Company, her opera company became the English National Opera, and the dance company which she started with Ninat became what is known today as the English Royal Ballet. So uh, in terms of just creating these three astonishing theatre companies, she's a very, very significant figure. And what sort of effect did she have on how Shakespeare was produced then and put on? Well, the, the main thing about Lillian Bayliss's um, theatres was there was never any money for anything. 
and the budgets for individual productions were rock bottom. And so she favoured productions in which, as she used to put it, his lovely words um, were the focus of attention, uh, usually because there was no very little scenery and the costumes were rather ancient. The focus was the words. That was, what, that was really all <laughs> that the actors had to um, play with. And so um, she actually inadvertently, as it were, encouraged what I'd describe as bare boards um, Shakespeare, and bare boards Shakespeare, of course, is, is Shakespeare where you are just playing on bare boards, you do not have a lot of set and scenery. Now, this is quite commonplace these days, but in 1914, when she started doing Shakespeare, when people did Shakespeare, they expected there to be a lot of scenery on stage and lots of costume and lots of scene changes. And the Victorian model of um, Shakespeare production was that it was massively expensive. Bayliss, because she wanted cheap Shakespeare, because she wanted bare boards Shakespeare, actually gave a great opportunity to um, theatre practitioners who were interested in the idea, uh, ideas of William Pole. And William Pole had argued that um, Shakespeare should be produced in a way um, as close as possible to original staging practices. Now, of course, at the um, original theatres used by Shakespeare's company, you didn't do a lot of scenery in the Victorian sense of scenery because you've got an audience on three sides, you start putting sets all over the place, people can't see. And so what Lillian Bayliss provided, certainly um, in the early 1920s at the Old Vic, was a sort of theatre laboratory in which practitioners could experiment with um, performing Shakespeare on bare boards. And one thing's very interesting is, I mean, they went a bit further, they, they actually constructed an apron going out um, over the orchestra pit. Um, and really tried to evoke the Elizabethan Playhouse um, stage. But the, the audiences initially were very confused by this and they didn't like it, but over a season or two, the Olvic audiences actually began to enjoy this bare boards, um, Shakespeare. And what Bayliss's theatre was doing, in effect, was educating an audience to be comfortable with and to enjoy a different kind of Shakespeare, not massively expensive pieces of set and scenery and furniture on stage and not very fashionable costumes but just the bare basics. And what effect do you think she's had on popularising Shakespeare then? Well I think she had an effect on popularising Shakespeare in the sense that the old Vic, um, they, were, they very much constructed themselves as plucky little battlers and um, they gave the sense that anyone could do Shakespeare and they also... Um, generated, well, they really promoted this idea that people could have a lot of fun with Shakespeare, they should be doing Shakespeare all the time. Shakespeare was available um, in a way that it just hadn't been to be before. I mean, sometimes she filled the theatre with school's audiences, which you know probably included some school children who weren't won over to the cause of Shakespeare. But I think that just in terms of exposing a whole generation of audiences to a lot of Shakespearean production. That's what she did to help to popularise Shakespeare. Later on, when she was developing the careers of stars like Laurence Olivier, she was popularising Shakespeare in a different way. I mean, when Laurence Olivier was appearing at the Old Vic, you know, the gallery was full of people screaming because he, he was by then, you know, a major film star and known for his good looks, and they weren't actually quite so fussed about how he declaimed Shakespeare's immortal lines. but. Um, that's certainly um, how she managed to popularise Shakespeare, I think. And what do you hope uh, is the result of the biography then? Well, I, I do hope that sh her achievements will be more widely acknowledged. I mean, the astonishing 
um, legacy that she leaves theatre workers today, um, it does it deserves to be remembered. Um, she certainly challenged um, and continues to challenge a lot of theatre um, directors and artistic directors, and in particular her absolute commitment to providing top class texts like Shakespeare at rock bottom prices I think is something which um, a, a lot of theatre managers might think um, more about. She very much believed in the right, the absolute right of everyone to have access to Shakespeare. Now not everyone wants access to Shakespeare but she felt that even if you were on a very very low wage you should not be denied the opportunity to see Shakespeare if that's what you wanted. And I think that really is what I would like remembered um, about Lillian Baylis. Well, two contrasting biographies of Shakespeare and Shakespeare's work and how it was acted, uh, both of you. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.